Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Sam Hales. Sam is the founder and CEO of the Saratoga Group, a fund manager with a specialty in opportunity zones. Sam received his MBA from the Wharton School of Business, and he now has over 15 years of real estate and management experience. He has developed and purchased office buildings, industrial buildings, multifamily buildings, and even a boutique hotel. Since 2017, (laughs) the focus at Saratoga Group has been the purchase, revitalization, and operation of mobile home parks. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, man, you if I listen to that every morning, I think uh, my, <laughs> my ego would get a little inflated, but I uh, appreciate the intro. <laughs> yeah, no worries, man. Can you, uh, would you mind starting out by just telling our listeners a little bit about your background and, and how you got into manufactured housing? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. I think anybody that gets into manufactured housing always kicks themselves for not doing it sooner, right? So I've got a lot of years, as you mentioned, in real estate. First established Saratoga Group about 11 years ago, doing single family homes. We raised a fund, um, actually money from China for that. And we're doing single family homes in the Northern California area. And Listen, that was a good time to be in in real estate in general and certainly in in single family homes and there was great yield and and of course we saw a lot of price appreciation but uh it, it yeah price appreciation price appreciation to the point that to me in terms of the yields it just didn't make sense and so we started looking around and kind of dabbling and that's that's why you hear you know the office building the the multifamily some development boutique hotel were we were just kind of dipping our toe in a few different areas, trying to find something we could both scale and also that made sense in all economic cycles. And uh, anybody that's been through that exercise, I mean, at the end of the day, you probably come to two assets, self-storage and, and uh, mobile home parks. And for us, uh, we just felt because of some of the moats around manufactured housing, that make it a lot more difficult for other people to, you know, build another park or whatever, like you see in self-storage. You, you weren't going to have that competition over time. You got kind of a fixed supply and, and increasing demand just seemed like, you know, great fundamentals for an investment thesis. Um, so fun, funny enough, I was actually uh, kind of two, two different people in my life that turned me on to manufactured housing all at the same time. Uh, one of them was was a buddy of mine, and and he had another friend that's uh, an operator in the space, and 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 so he just kind of started feeding me a little bit. I'm like, man, I really need to look into this. And then the other one was actually our banker, uh, who we, you know we we'd done a lot of financing of these uh, tranches of homes and things that we had bought or purchased, and uh, and they loved mobile home parks. Not all banks do, but but this no. bank did, and uh, and so they. They, they were kind of nudging me as well. So yeah, that, that's, and then, and then once I started learning and, and finding out, I'm like, man, I should have done this like seven years ago, but I'm going to try to make up for lost time. And that, that's what we've been doing. We, so, 
in three years, we've purchased 26 communities. Um, we actually have over 20 in contract right now. Oh my goodness. Um, so (laughs) our, our goal has been basically to double our lot count every year. And obviously that gets, um, very difficult at some point, but, um, that would mean for us buying probably 5,000 pads next year. Um, and we, but we'll, we'll have closed on, you know, probably about 3,500 this year by, by the end of the year. So anyway, yeah, that, that's, that's us. That's what we have going on. That's fantastic. And are all of your communities in opportunity zones that you guys purchase? Uh, no. So, so yeah, interesting thing that happened with the, with the opportunity zones, actually uh, another couple investments that we had uh, were in a, in a downtown area uh, here in Northern California that was an opportunity zone. And so that's kind of how I found out about it and started looking into, Hey, did it make sense for this multifamily investment that, uh, build out we were doing and also this uh, uh, the boutique hotel uh, we didn't end up using OZ money for those projects but once we started getting into mobile home parks and I realized well hold on this is those e requirements I already knew those pretty well and it's like well that that's what we're doing right we're we're, we're going in we're, we're investing in these communities we're helping people that actually the legislation was designed to help Often it doesn't, right? Because often yeah. you're building like really nice multifamily or a really nice hotel in maybe a, an area that's gentrifying or needs to be gentrified, needs some help, needs some money. I said that incorrectly, not needs to be gentrified, right? But but needs needs investment capital. Sure. Uh, but but anyway, and that's, it's like every mobile home park should probably be in an opportunity zone because yeah. that those are the folks that it was designed to help. So, uh, anyway, it would just seem like a great marriage. And, and uh, so we started, uh, we raised our first fund beginning of 2019 uh, for Opportunity Zones uh, and, and manufactured housing. We recently closed our second fund at about $16 million And we'll probably launch our next fund, uh, I'd say in the next four to six weeks with a target raise of like $30 million. So, oh my goodness, man. Wow. Yeah. Talk about massive growth. You guys must, must have a, a really big team to help, you know, explode like that. That's fantastic. Yeah. We're, we're, we're trying to hire early as they say, right? Because yeah, it, it's, it's hard to make sure we're doing the right thing with everything we already have, not to mention what we're going to be buying. And so, yeah, so we're, um, in the last, 12 months, we, we actually uh, were looking at this just to kind of, because that's another way to look at the growth, right? Um, so we've got about 17 new employees in the last 12 months. Wow. Um, so yeah, I, you I need just, them. You, yeah, you got to have them. We, we do. We do. We'll probably have, you know, 30, 35, probably in the next, in, in the coming 12. So that's great. Sam, what would you say is the hardest part about the mobile home park business in your eyes? Well, Good, good question. You know, I think usually, sorry about the siren in the background. Uh, in, the, in the past, I would have said, and I think this is still true, uh, but it's finding appropriate acquisition opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, if, if we're doing an opportunity zone fund, then we've got that extra filter. And so 
but just because it's in an opportunity zone doesn't mean we're necessarily going to buy it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. so we still have to go through all the underwriting criteria and make sure it's a decent area and, the, and the, there's the economy and jobs to kind of support over the long term the uh, the investment. So, you know, so when I look at, yeah, if we're going to raise $30 million, we're typically pretty low leverage, especially in an OZ fund, but that's probably, you know, $60 million worth of real estate yeah. at purchase. You know, is there that much available in, in opportunity zones? We, we think so. I mean, we, we were able to find our last, we actually just are closing on our last deals in that $16 million fund, but uh, that'll be 14 parks. And, you know, it, it took nine months to find those, uh, you know, all told. But but I think, uh, you know, part of that is we knew what our capital constraints were. I think we could have, we could have done similar, uh, or I'm sorry, we could have, we could have done, you know, maybe 50 to hundred percent more uh, that met our criteria in, in the same amount of time. If, if, you know, we knew that capital was available. So they're out there. They're definitely out there. But it takes, as you know, Andrew, it takes a lot of uh, relationships, a lot of, um, a lot of work yeah. kind of finding yeah, those. finding them. And are you guys buying primarily through broker relationships or is it, uh, you know, direct marketing to owners? So we, we have a couple things in the OZ space, we actually, we call it the QOZ finder and it's, it's basically a web bot that we developed oh, that nice. goes out and kind of scrubs the internet and finds mobile home communities that are in opportunity zones and, and kind of, so, so we've got two things going. We, we've got the database that we've identified and just kind of did a lookup table based on, on map coordinates and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then we match that against what we find on the internet. So, so that that's one thing that really helps on the OZ side of it. Otherwise, yeah, it's it's a combination. Let me look at our pipeline here. So, just to kind of you know give you an idea, because it's yeah, it's it's an interesting thought. We uh, so we've got two portfolios we're closing that we're both through brokers. Um, then we have a good sized park, 220 spaces uh, in Memphis. That's, that's an off market deal, um, kind of direct to seller. We've got another one in North Carolina. That's going to be our largest park. It's almost 500 spaces. Um, and, and that's also kind of direct to seller, uh, fortunate to, to get that deal. We're super excited about it. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. Huge. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I mean, it's a combination. It's kind of combination. It's, sure. It's, it's some involved. So would you say, you know, one of the harder things then is to just, you know, you have that extra filter of like an, you know, an OZ zone, you know, is that the hardest part of the business? Just finding good opportunities to pursue? Well, right up there with, with yeah. that challenge is, is operating. Sure. Right. I mean, just kind of really, really running these communities. Especially with that growth, that massive growth. I mean, you know, hiring that many people in and of itself could be difficult. So, right, right. I, another buddy of mine who's in the business and, and, you know, they, his, his firm's been in the business a lot longer than we have. 
And uh, I always like, like our conversation here, Andrew, I love just talking to other operators and kind of, you know, sharing what we've learned, but also figuring out what other people know and, and trying to adopt. And, and uh, you know, it's just, I was sharing our org chart and our and kind of how we're put together. And, and he's like, he's like, something doesn't make sense. He's like, there's no way that you have two regionals handling that many communities. Right. And, and so, and so then we started talking about like, what do we, how do we divide the workload? Who's doing what? And, um, and, and so as I went through that and kind of described everything that our onsite managers are responsible for, his response was, well, okay, yeah, it totally makes sense. You're, you're basically pushing a lot down to those onsite managers. And, and, and that's kind of been our attitude is like, we're, we'll pay our onsites more than probably most people will in the industry. And, and we get them health benefits and we get them 401k. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, it's nice, they're, yeah. they're like truly a part of the team, but we also expect a lot. So, sure. so that we're really kind of pushing some of that workload down to that level where there, uh, you know, a number of them are, so we've got Greenville, North Carolina. We have five communities there, about 500 pads. And, uh, and we've got, we've got a, a main manager and then an assistant, but I mean, the, she's almost like a regional, right? That, that main manager. I mean, she's, we've got the two of them really running those, those five communities. So we, so yeah, paying them a little bit more and getting the kind of results that we insist on and that, and that we're getting um, seems to be a good model for us. It, the challenge is if you go into new geography and you, your first part's a hundred pads, like it's pretty expensive, right? Yeah. To, to run that with that kind of a team. And mm-hmm. so we're always mindful of if we're going into a new geography, we need to make sure that we, there's a runway to be able to pick up some more communities to, to kind of amortize those costs. So yeah, anyway, totally. that, that's kind of, that's been our approach. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. There's more than one way to skin a cat, right? There's, there's a lot of different ways to set up management, management structure on these. Uh, would you mind explaining to our audience what an opportunity zone is, you know, and maybe a little more detail just to provide, you know, some of the benefits that they offer to investors? Yes. And, uh, and, and people can run fact check on me here if I hope I get all my, my, my details correct. But uh, I believe there are 8,700 opportunity zones in the country. And the way that that worked it was federal legislation, right? I mean, in other words, it's a federal tax credit, uh, but it's administered on a state level, meaning the states were given the authority to go designate the opportunity zones. And I've read and I've talked to people, and I've heard a lot about kind of that process. And, and as you can imagine, it was a little bit political. For example, in California, the entire campus of Stanford University was submitted as an opportunity zone. Jeez. And I know I, you and I, we can sit here and laugh about it in some ways. It ticks me off, right? <laughs> because it's like, well, obviously, if you do that, like that, that's a sort of thing that takes away from the credibility of what it, what it was established to do. Yeah. Um, you know, fortunately, the government was the federal government was like, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. um, and so so, you know, there was there was kind of a check and balance there. Um, but it's it's really, you know, the opportunity zones I and mean, there's certain requirements they had to meet in terms of, you know, income relative to poverty levels and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so 
So, like I said, that was left up to the state governments. And then from there, um, it's really the way I, I think about it is it's really pulling capital that otherwise would not be earmarked or invested in real estate into real estate. What I, what I mean by that, like I spent a lot of years in the tech industry uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So a lot of the colleagues that I had and, and just my associations are kind of in, in that area. And our our latest Opportunity Zone fund, I mean, I don't want to say 100%, but a high percentage of the folks that invested in the Opportunity Zone fund, they weren't coming out of capital gain events in real estate. They were coming out of capital gain events with their stock options or with the business they sold or, or you know, things like that. And there's never really been tax advantages for those scenarios. And people just, you know, you sell a business, you pay your tax. You sell stock, you pay your capital gains. That's kind of what it's been. And, and this changed that. And, and I, to me, that's kind of the beauty of it is that, you know, why would somebody who works at Facebook and just sold a million dollars with the shares how in the world would they ever think of, you know, what I really want to do is I want to go invest in these communities that nobody else is investing in that need help. I, I mean, even if they, if they, you know, that's how they felt and that's how, like how they can do that. <laughs> they don't, sure. you know, they're not in real estate. They don't know, you know, how to attack that problem. Um, so, so anyway, and that, and that's obviously, you know, it was set, it was designed. You could only do it through a fund. So people, so even if somebody said, hey, I want to do this on my own, they would have to establish a fund. You can't actually just do direct investment. Um, so I, I, I think it was very well thought out. Uh, we're obviously in the early stages of it. Um, in terms of, I'm sorry, you know, I'm kind of rambling here, Andrew, so cut me off. Of, no, like, you're fine. Dude, you're, you're going fine. down this rabbit hole, like, come back, <laughs> come back. <laughs> um, but, but the other part of that is, you know, what are, what are the impacts for the investor? Like, what does that mean? And there's really three... Uh, tax advantages that an investor gets. So, so the first thing is, um, well, we don't have, we probably have to chart some of this stuff, but you know, in real estate, a lot of, t there's all sorts of tax advantages. One of them would be a 1031 exchange, right? So you, you've got your property you sell and you got to roll it into a new property. And when you do that, you, if you take any money off the table, right? So if you, Hey, you had all this price appreciation. You're like, well, I want some of that money and I'll invest the rest. Whatever you take off the table, um, whether it was original contribution or profit, gets taxed. In in the opportunity zone, that's not true. So, uh, you know, if you sold something for a million dollars and half of it, five hundred thousand was was profit and the rest was your basis, um, you you could take your basis off the table. So you, you, and there's no tax at all. You just have to roll in whatever the profit is, or at least if whatever you don't roll in does get taxed anyway. So the, the first thing that happens is that money that, that the capital gains money that gets rolled into a fund, uh, you, you're able to, uh, delay paying taxes on that. And, and that's like a, it's out till 2026. So in 2026, you still have to, you still have to pay those taxes. Now, the second advantage is, so you get a deferral, you get a tax deferral. You know, at this point, we're talking six, five and a half, six years. Um, the second part of that is that um, you get a step up in your basis. So, 
And I was just trying to think about where we are in the timeline. I believe it through 2020, um, you get a 10% step up. Um, so, so in other words, you know, again, if it was $500,000 that, that you were investing, all capital gains, then you step that up by your basis by 10%. So basically 50,000 of the 500 would not be taxed at all. So you'd only be taxed on the, on the remaining 450. The third advantage, which is really the, um, to me, the biggest advantage is that whatever appreciation happens inside the opportunity zone fund is tax free. So if you choose a good investment and sell it after 10 years, you have to invest for a minimum of 10 years. Uh, that could all be completely tax-free when you sell. And to, yeah, I, I mean, that, that, so, the, so again, that, that could be the, that could be the, the biggest advantage with just one more comment on that is that um, our, our philosophy a little bit is, you know, a lot of these funds, you know, say, Hey, it's a 10 year fund and we plan to sell it year 10 or year 11. Our approach is actually you don't have to sell it year 10 or year 11 you can continue to hold it and it continues to grow tax-free. In other words, if you held it 15 years and sold it after 15, it's still a non-taxable event. If you, if you hold it, you can hold it all the way out till 2056. Wow. And, and right now, you know, if you sell it in 2056, you're still tax-free. Um, and, to, and to us, we're like, okay, because you think about it, if, and this is what we described to our investors and, and nearly everyone agrees with us. Okay. Yeah, this makes sense is if you sell, awesome. Like you don't have to pay any taxes. Well, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, maybe, maybe you want to buy a yacht, right? But probably you don't. Probably what you want to do is like, well, I got to roll that into something else that is going to generate income. Whatever that other investment is, it's obviously taxable if you, if you were to, uh, you know, exit that. So, so sure. we tell people we're just, we're staying in because as long as, we don't have to sell and we know that that's a tax-free event when we do uh it makes more sense to stay in than it does to try to find another investment and and, and have to pay taxes on the other one so totally anyway yeah long, long-winded explanation sorry no i appreciate you explaining that that's really really high detail stuff and i'm sure it can get confusing at points but i i mean the value is there that's tremendous um you know sam tell us what you think for passive investors interested in, you know, investing in mobile home parks, what is the biggest risks that they face? You know, like when they're looking at deals, you know, this could be on a micro level or a macro level, you know, what, what are the biggest risks to, you know, LP passive investors? Okay, great. So, so yeah, like you said, so this would be just a passive investor looking at investing in a syndication or a fund. Correct. Um, I mean, it's got to be the operator, right? So, uh, de- you know, definitely, I mean, you're going to find very few people, especially right now, that would not agree that the investment thesis of affordable housing makes a lot of sense, and specifically manufactured housing. Uh, but relative to even other commercial real estate classes, the operational risk is pretty high. So, I mean, that would just be my, my recommendation is you just, you want to make sure you've got somebody that 
you know, has done it a few times, kind of knows what it takes, what to expect. And, and I, Andrew, I know you probably hear this all the time. It's like, Hey, manufactured housing. It's like owning a parking lot. Like it's super easy. And, and like, I don't, <laughs> I don't even know where that came from. Do you know? I mean, I've heard people yeah. say it and, and some people even that are, that are in the business. I'm like, you know, first I was like, what am I doing wrong? If they're doing right. Um, but it, yeah, you realize like to really, at least what we're doing, we're doing value add, right? Yeah. So and to us, that, that's what makes sense in this, in this current uh, investment environment. But if you're doing value add, yeah, you got to dig in, you got to get dirty, you know, communities that we've, we've gotten up the ramp and they're there. Yeah. They're, they're a lot easier to manage. I don't know that they're even then is that, is it as easy or easier than a similar quality multifamily? I'm not convinced. Right. I mean, because it's, it's still, uh, you still just kind of have the dynamics of of people kind of you know owning their their own home in this community, but but just the interactions that happen in that sort of situation versus an apartment building. Yeah, there's just nuances there. So I, I mean, that would just be my main thing is is you definitely want somebody that's that's experienced in um, in doing this type of investment. Of course, you know, I say that and. and everybody has to get started. You know, you did, I did. And, and I'm fortunate that, you know, investors that, that had done some other things with us were willing to take a chance on us with, uh, with manufactured housing. Um, and it, it's been, uh, it's been a lot of work, but it's been fun. And do you guys have your own property management company? Cause I, I spoke to some other fund managers that have tried third party management and, you know, there's not, there's a very few, you know, nationwide, third-party property managers that manage mobile home parks. So how, how have you guys overcome that hurdle? Uh, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we, we didn't even really take a serious look at it just because uh, we had a couple conversations and it was just clear, even my, my, my thesis going in was even if we wanted to do third-party at some point, before then we need to do it ourselves so that we know when we hire the third-party Hey, here's what we want them to do. Sure. Um, and so the way that we've looked at it is processes and systems, right? So yeah, people, people as well, right? And I, I kind of talked about the people portion of it. But uh, in order to make people successful, like we needed to have processes uh, and we needed to have systems that made it easy and efficient for them to do those things. So I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, we require each of our managers to do a weekly video. And, and so we, we buy a phone for them. So like, there's no excuses about ah, my phone and this, and this. it's like, no, here you go. You get issued a phone. Uh, you know, we put it on a plan and then, and then we set up these Google photo albums that automatically as they take their videos, it gets uploaded. Uh, and then we're, we're able to just easily, you know, basically get a snapshot every week of, Hey, here's what, here's what's going on. Here's this project over here. And we, you know, kind of coach some of that stuff. Um, and then another thing that we do, we, we use project management software. So in our business specifically, because we're doing so many improvement projects, it, it was clear, like we needed 
management software, project management software to ensure that we're meeting timelines and budgets and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so we're using Asana. Uh, and what's nice is we're, we're built on Google Apps. So like all of our integrations ha- are, are systems that need to be able to integrate with, with Google Apps. And so people, you know, it's all synchronized kind of with your email and, and all these things they take you know, sometimes you look and you're like, oh gosh, like trying to train people on this stuff because everybody just wants to use what they're used to, right? And like, like, I'm not logging into that. Like, I'll just send you an email and it's like, you know, I will not respond to this email. (laughs) If you want a response, you need to go into, I mean, you just have to do that stuff because human nature, we're all the same. We we just like doing stuff we're comfortable with. Um, So so we just were real insistent on that sort of thing so that we we could use some tools that we knew would help us be more efficient. I mean, we, our monthly bill on software is pretty steep, but um, I, I look at like how would we, gold, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like how would, how else would we do what we're trying to do with, without some of those systems? I, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. I, I take multiple people. So totally, totally. Can you explain a little bit about the value add components that you guys have implemented and and in some of your current portfolio, you know, a lot of our listeners come from other asset classes where they're familiar with the value add model. You know, you you build it up, you refinance and you hold, or you you build it up and you sell. Right. What? Tell us a little bit about the value add that you guys have have implemented, and you know, what was the harder ones and what were easier? Cool. So, so you mean just in terms of like what kind of projects we did? Yeah. 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 Um. So. Yeah, I'll just go over kind of some of our maybe like budget wise, dollar dollar wise. So the uh, a lot of times if you're buying one of these older communities, they you know they're typically built in like the seventies. I don't know. That seems to be like I don't know what happened in the seventies exactly, but man, I tell you, like I think eighty percent of our mobile home parks were built in the seventies, right? So you think about that, and it's like okay, so that means probably your sewer lines are fifty years old. A lot of your water lines are 50 years old. Your electrical distribution and pedestals, some of those things are 50. You know, I mean, you just kind of sure. go down the list. You're like, okay, like, yeah, that's probably rated for like 20 years, right? Yeah, I mean, some of this, <laughs> some of this stuff. So, it, I mean, we've done, we've repiped entire parks, right? Sewer lines, water lines. We've, uh, you know, we just got done completely, <clears throat> excuse me, completely redoing some electrical not only the pedestals, but having to redo distribution lines. And then there's the more obvious ones, right? Which is like the roads. Mm-hmm. I, to, what, what we found, I don't know your experience, Andrew, but we, what we found, the high, it's like when people are remodeling a house, right? You can, you can go online, you can look up, hey, you know, if, you're, if you want the most ROI for, for uh, renovating your home, like start in the kitchen, you know, and then it's the bathrooms and it's the master suite, whatever. I think, I mean, this is not scientific, but our experience is if we redo the roads, man, like it just attracts people. Everybody's happy. Uh, It just, it seems to be the big thing that really is impactful for the residents and for prospective residents. Um, So we almost always do that to, you know, somehow, I mean, you know, sometimes the roads are in pretty good shape. It's like, well, we'll just, we'll reseal them. I mean, like, that's just what we do um, 
typically with, within, you know, a short time of, of owning the, owning the community. And, uh, yeah, so, so that, oh, here's another one. We, uh, I don't know if I shared this with you before, but we were looking at lighting and we, uh, as you know, in the, in the industry, a lot of people have used gamma sonic and, and that's mm-hmm. kind of talked about. And when I say lighting, solar lighting, right. LED solar lighting. And so we, we tested out, we, you know, we purchased a couple gamma sonic, um, poles and, and, and lights. And, and we'd kind of, you know, we, 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 I'm an engineer, my brother, Luke is an engineer. And we just, you know, so we, we looked at it and look at the specs. We're like, that's not very bright. I don't think, you know, sure enough. I mean, we get it in it's like, well, it lights up a little bit of area, but not what we wanted. So we've got a project manager here, Fletcher. And I, I just, I said, look, you don't have to figure this out overnight, but like, I'll give you a couple months. We need to figure out a good solar lighting solution. Like we need, so that, that, you know, when you talk about like impactful projects, asphalt's huge, lighting up a community so that people feel safe and it, and it, and it, right. It just at night. I mean, that, that's a big deal for, for, and that's probably number two, I think. Um, And so, yeah, I told Fletcher, I was like, look, you know, this is probably going to take a little while, but we're going to need, need to do some testing. Like we need to make sure, you know, how bright are these? How do they work? Yeah, it, it took longer than two months, probably took six really. Um, but what we ended up with is <clears throat> street lights. They're, they're, they're 17 to 18 feet in the air and they literally light up like a street light. So they'll, they'll light up a, a radius of like 50 feet. That's great. And What's so, the brand on those? Um, it's called Tenku. Tenku. T e n k o o. It's a okay. Korean company. And oh, you saved me six months right there. No, absolutely no. <laughs> Actually, we have we have, Andrew. We have a whole manual we put together because, like I said, this was something that was important to us. We've had yeah. a lot of people share with us, and we're like, you know what? Let's go ahead and put a, a whole manual together. Here's how you. Here's all the parts. Here's how you put them together here's how you cement it. Anyway, so I can send that over to you. It's uh, something we, you know, develop for ourselves so that as we, as we do it with these different parts, we can just kind of hand the manual to that manager and, and, and their staff and, and kind of make it happen. But we've got community, we're putting 50 of them in uh, a community down in Texas. And uh, it, it's just, it's exciting, right? The residents yeah. get excited about that as well, because that's a big complaint, right? I mean, if you have any sort of crime or concerns about crime or, or visitors or whatever, uh, that's, oh, they have an auto sensor on them. So they'll kind of be in a dim mode and then somebody drives or walks by and they, and they brighten up significantly. And, wow. um, that's very yeah. cool. So, so and, and, it, and we've got it down to about $800 for the whole assembly. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to get that uh, that manual for sure, and I'll I'll put that in the show notes. But awesome. Tell me in in regards to like NOI value add to you know increase the NOI. You know, obviously infill is has been one of the big ways to to do that, and it's kind of known as like the hard way to kind of increase yes. NOI. Yep. You know, would you agree with that? What struggles have you come across through that process? And you know, maybe is there you know some some utility billbacks or other things you've done to actually affect the bottom line besides obviously, you know, the, the CapEx that you mentioned previous. Yeah. So 
Yeah, you're 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 certainly right. The uh, the infill is a it's an important piece, but it's it's not the easiest way to to improve uh, your uh, your net operating income. So, for example, we purchased two communities in Phoenix City, Alabama, part of Columbus, Georgia. It's kind of right across the Chattahoochee River there, but it's really part of Columbus. And it is probably our worst market in terms of you know median income, median home price, what is a three-bedroom rent for, all that sort of stuff. And we've had fantastic results there. Now, that being said, we bought two communities. One of them was, was actually 90% full, uh, but was losing money every month. I'll explain that one in a minute. The other one was 126 spaces with 100 park-owned homes, and 70 of them were vacant. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was, wow. it was like, oh, man. And, we, and this is one of our first acquisitions. It was, it was tough. I, but our, what, what we said is, you know what? We believe, even though we didn't pay much for those homes, we know that there's value there and we think we can extract it. And so <clears throat> we, we use, so we don't let anybody move in as a renter. We, we want communities where people own their homes. A lot of times you got to give, give them a path to get to the home ownership. And so we use, you know, like a rent credit lease option type contract. Um, and so what that means is that even if somebody's buying a home that we didn't renovate yet, right? So they, we give them three months of free lot rent and they fix it up or whatever. Even then we require at least a thousand dollars upfront just, just for the, that part of it. Um, and so in 18 months, I guess, well, we're at two years now. Um, I think we have seven or eight homes left out of the 70. Um, wow. And I'm sure so, we could have an, a whole episode just about that yeah. one community. Oh, no, no, no. That it's, it's been, it's been amazing. Um, but, but the funny thing is, 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 you know, we had some vacant lots as well. Uh, not that many, but we were like, well, you know, we, we're going, we're going here with the used homes. And then, so it's like, we had the homes we renovated. We had the homes that needed renovation. We hadn't got to yet. And then we were like, well, let's do some new homes as well. I'm trying to remember exactly, but it took over six months to sell two new homes in the community. I think now it would take, it would go a lot quicker because it's mostly full and uh, you know, we've kind of got more momentum there, but, but I guess my point is depending on the market infill could be super challenging, right? Because it's, like I said, it took us a long time just to sell two homes in that market. Um, you know, if instead of vacant homes, we just had vacant lots, you know, I, I'd be telling a different story about that park, I'm pretty sure. Um, so, like I said, most of our target markets, we have, the fundamentals are better. So that, you know, for example, we own one in, in Marietta, Georgia, we bought about a year ago. Um, we've brought in about 35 new homes there so far. And we have, a, we have a waiting list for new homes there. Right. Wow. So it's obviously, it's obviously market dependent. Um, but, uh, but, but that, that would be the thing is that, you know, in this, in this market, it's hard to get homes. It's hard to get inventory. So if you're, if you're in 
a, a geography where it's going to be harder to sell new homes, you got to be pretty creative with how you, how you bring those, you know, how you infill your community. Sure. Um, Have you brought in used homes to communities or, and then where do you get your new homes? You know, are you using like the, the 21st mortgage cash program or something similar? Yeah. So we, uh, we've done some used homes, very few. I mean, like just a handful. Like I said, I, I mean, we kind of weigh it out of, of the used versus the new and, and just used homes right now, they're selling at a premium. Right. I mean, sure. Unless you know something I don't about a, a good source, <laughs> but just, just from what we found, you know, people that, that, that that's their business, they kind of know what they have. They know that it's six months wait from Clayton and whatever. And they're like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll sell you the home and you know, here's what it's going to cost. So, so we've just said, yeah, for, for that price, we'd rather buy a new home um, typically. Uh, but what it has done is, is, you know, this situation I was describing where you've got a whole bunch of vacant homes. I think we would probably be inclined previously to, if something needed more than, let's say $7,000 worth of work, it's like, well, let's, let's yank, <clears throat> yank it out and bring in a new one. We will we'll dig a little deeper into those and we'll, uh, you know, we'll take on a bigger home renovation uh, than, than probably we would if, if the market wasn't so tight for, for used inventory. Uh, as far as used homes, we're, I'm sorry, new homes, we pretty much have just used two vendors so far, Legacy. Uh, and as you probably know, they have their own financing arrangement mm -hmm. and then Clayton. And we've done their true product and then we're, we're buying quite a bit out of their Maynardville plant. Um, we've used 21st uh, and we're, we're getting set up with a with the First Bank as well. If you know oh, those nice. guys, are, they're out of Knoxville as well. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of been Very how, cool. how we're doing the info. Yeah, that's how, how about you guys? What, what do you, I mean, I, I realize maybe I'm supposed to be answering, but I'd love to hear what, what you guys are doing for that. Yeah, no, I mean, we've done, we've used Legacy before. We've done the 21st Mortgage Cash Program. Uh, prefer Legacy, just was a little bit quicker. And then we yeah. do infill a lot of used homes. That's kind of my specialty. I started out as a, a Lonnie dealer. So um, yeah, yeah. we'll have okay. to connect on that. Uh, yeah, soon. absolutely. Okay. Uh, Quick question, Sam, you know, what does the perfect mobile home park look like to you? You know, after being in the business, you know, where would it be located? What kind of, you know, what kind of tips would you give passive investors that are, say, looking at a, a syndication deal? You know, where, just a real quick deal review, what, what are the top things you would look for so that a passive investor can say, yes, this is a good deal or no, I don't like this. The, you know, median home values in the area are $30,000 or something like that. And that would be, yeah. you know, uh, an X. Yeah, maybe I'll start out like high level and, and kind of drill down a little bit. But sure. I would start off thinking about like what is the geography that you want to invest in, Me meaning just, you know, general area of the country. So for us, we went through that exercise and we decided that what we really like is the southeast. And when I say the southeast, it can, it can swing all the way over to like Texas, right? Hmm. And, and kind of the lower Midwest. But, but anyway, so, you know, the reason that we like the Southeast is generally a very business-friendly government, um, generally uh, long-term uh, demographic trends are positive with, with people leaving colder climates, coming, coming to, you know, generally warmer climates as the population ages and, and, and all of that. 
um, and, and just success begets success, right? So, so when you've got Toyota and BMW, and you know, I'm just thinking of these different markets that we're in, we're, we're large. You know, when I grew up, it's like if it was an auto manufacturer, it's in Michigan. Like, what, what are you talking about, Tennessee? I mean, that, I've never heard of that. <laughs> or South Carolina, but that's what's happening now, right? Alabama, Alabama's, Alabama's really. Uh, I love Alabama. They're they're they've been very thoughtful and and I think very proactive about bringing business um, and the right kind of business to the state. Um, obviously, Texas is, everybody knows that story and kind of what's the explosion that's happening there. So I, I would, yeah, I would start there and, and just kind of think about the geography. Um, in terms of more specifics on uh, on geography, or because or, look, if I say the Southeast, I do not mean like Podunk Town, Mississippi, right? Because <laughs> you're going to get crushed. Sure. <laughs> Um, I've, I've looked at a lot of opportunities in the Southeast that, you know, didn't get past five minutes because you, you, you kind of, you pull it up on best places and you figure out, yeah, this place is dying. And there, yeah. that's happened, you know, that happens all over the country. Uh, but there's certainly areas in the Southeast that you would generally very rural that you want to avoid. Yeah. And like, like just to comment on that, I'm on a list yeah of a bunch of repossessed homes. And okay. Every month I get an email of that list of repoed mobile homes and Mississippi and Louisiana always have the most homes yeah. that are being repossessed from usually yeah. private purchasers that have purchased direct. So interesting that, you know, you got to watch out for some markets. Yeah. That's, we should probably set up a trucking company from Mississippi to, you know, Alabama or something. We might make a lot of money just pulling homes from, from one place to the other. <laughs> oh, um, so yeah, it's crazy, right? To, I, I did, I studied this a little bit one time in, in terms of when you've got bordering States that have, you know, different philosophical government policy and just, and then sometimes it's income tax or whatever, but just you can see these stark differences in what are otherwise like the same place. Uh, but, but yeah, you look at, you know, most of Louisiana, for example, versus Alabama. I mean, Alabama 25 years ago when I lived in Georgia, yeah, Alabama was Mississippi and Louisiana. And it's, and it's amazing kind of what they've done to, to turn it around. Um, but, but yeah, from there, you know, it's kind of the general things I'm sure, Andrew, you guys look at are like, you know, in that city, in that MSA, what is the population? Is it growing? What's the economy? What are the top employers? Uh, you know, how, how long uh, does, does real estate sit on the market when somebody's trying to sell it? Um, what is it? Three, uh, Charles Becker out of Duke University did, you know, he studied the, the mobile home park industry and, and, and one of the things that he's concluded is that really the replacement housing for manufactured housing are three bedroom rents. You know, it could be a, it could be a home, could be an apartment, but that's really the very best proxy for your mobile home uh, or in a mobile home community. And so, so that's, that's a big one we look at. We definitely want to see a strong three bedroom rent. Uh, so, so yeah, so that, that's kind of the, the next thing that we look at. And, and obviously you want to, you want to pay attention to where is that community in, in the town and what is the crime rate like there? And, and generally what are the schools like? We don't, we don't get too bogged down in, in some of that stuff though. Cause 
again, it's it's affordable housing. If if we if we said, hey, all the schools have to be magnet levels, it's like, well, we, we probably wouldn't buy them on the home parks because yeah. there, there aren't there aren't hardly any in the in those areas, right? Sure. So then then from there, I I no, I, I've been thinking about that question as soon as you said it in terms of like the ideal mobile home park investment. I think my favorite so far are communities where the previous owner, usually a mom and pop owner, very hands-on, and they made the decision that they were going to fill up their park and they were going to keep all their homes. So they rent out their homes. And I love buying those communities where they're like highly occupied, have a whole bunch of park-owned homes because we've shown and we've proven to ourselves, hey, we can sell off those homes in, in a relatively quick amount of time and we can we can reallocate value or rent away from the homes and towards the lots in the communities. So for example, we've got a, a small portfolio in uh, Greenville, South Carolina that, that we're uh, going to be purchasing here pretty soon. And their average rent, their average lot rent is 170 a month. The market's probably 350 to 400. <laughs> now, the dip, but again, it's all, almost all park-owned homes, and they're they're attributing or allocating four to five hundred dollars worth of rent in the home. So what what we're going to do at acquisition is we send out a new lease agreement, and it's like okay, you know, maybe your rent went up twenty five dollars, but the important thing to us is that your allocation between your lot rent and your home rent just just flipped, right? So now now your lot rent's three fifty or four hundred, your home rent's one hundred fifty, and and then we start selling off the home. So we're able to capture quite a bit of that value while also offloading those expenses. Um, and I, those, because what's nice about that is you're turning it from a real kind of renter mentality community into a, an ownership community. And, and, and it's like it switches, like when that flip gets, or that switch gets flipped, it's just, it's such a difference going to that community where it's like all of a sudden people have gardens. They have, I mean, there's just a care and a concern that they have that, that you never saw previously. And, and so I love that. And, but economically it's great because while we transition, we've got a ton of cash flow, right? So, yeah. so we're, we're kind of, it's cash flowing from the, from the time we, you know, like this one in Greenville, when we include all of the, all of the income, right, from the homes and the, and the lots, we're like a 12 cap going in. Now, you know, it's not really a 12 cap, right, because that it's not, I don't consider sure. the home income as recurring revenue. And, and that's without, that's like a 67% expense ratio. I mean, that's with heavy expenses, which we know we kind of need when you've got all those homes. But as you start selling those off, your expenses go away actually faster than your income. Right, because you're mm-hmm. you're now pushing that to to the residents. They're taking care of it themselves, and so that transition's great. And then once you reach the other end, where you've got mostly tenant-owned homes, you, there's there's like it's like an arbitrage because all of a sudden the banks like it. They don't like park-owned homes. They love tenant-owned homes, and so now you can get super cheap debt, and you can get more leverage, and it just like your the value of what you of your asset just went up significantly. Yeah. And, and that is different than a lot of other operators that, that I've spoken with and different from our model because the, 
you know, do you guys have a certain way you pro forma that up front? Do you say, hey, we have 100% park owned homes, you know, upon acquisition, we expect a third, a third of them to stay, a third of them to leave, and a third of them to continue renting. You know, I've heard that model before. How do you guys kind of pro forma for which ones you're actually going to be able to keep occupied? Yeah, no, we, we, uh, we typically, based on our experience, it's about 25 to 30% don't want to own their own home. They're just, they're like, Hey man, I'm a renter. Like there's no way I'm fixing the toilet when it starts leaking. Like I need to call somebody, <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. And so that's, so yeah, so we, we include in the pro forma, okay, we're going to probably need to do a make ready on, on this percentage of these homes. And then we kind of project, it'll take on, on average, like two, three years to, to transition most of the community. Um, and, and, you know, that, that that's what it's been. So, uh, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. Cause a lot of, you know, a lot of people I talk to, like, they don't, they don't want to mess with that and they don't, yeah, um, it's more work. Yeah. It's more work. It's definitely it more work. Um, but, um, but we've been able to, to do it a few times. And so that's, that's probably great. my favorite kind. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, that makes you different in the, in the history of the show interviews. So kudos for you, man. I'm sure you'll get more deals because of that. That's awesome. I, I, yeah, I think, I think so. Right. Just cause a lot of people look at that and say, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the thing is, it's like, so whether that home is, is currently vacant or currently occupied, you have, you and you and I know this, it used to be in the industry, you could have a vacant lot and, and dealers and other people would bring homes in. Like that doesn't happen really. Not no. much. Yeah. So, so one way or another, you've got to get a home on that lot. I'd rather it was already there. That's and, a good point. Then bring in a new one in. Yeah. Bring, that's bring a, it in and pay, you know, seven, $8,000 to get it shipped, set up, skirted, all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, that, that's just kind of how, how we look at it. And there's a, there's a little bit of friction as we, as we kind of transition stuff and, and some challenges, but um, it's, it's worked out well for us. That's fantastic. Uh, last question, you know, what are the typical gener- general partner, limited partner splits? And, and are you raising capital now for, for that fund? You know, and what are, what are some typical fees that in, investors could expect? Okay, yeah. So uh, generally... So we'll have a preferred return, depending on the deal, it's usually six to seven percent. We generally generally do like a 70-30, 40-60 or 70-30 split. And then there's usually a second tier where where it goes to 50-50, uh, which you know means probably investors getting 14% or whatever by the time it gets to that split. Um, so that's pretty general for us. Uh, we charge property management fees, we have an acquisitions fee. Uh, we have a, you know, if we refinance a property, we'll take a 1% fee there. I'm trying to think if I'm missing anything there. On our opportunity zone fund, we also ch- charge an asset management fee. And the reason is there's just, you know, for every community in an OZ, it's there's heavy lifting. So we have to have the personnel uh, in place and, 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 and everything to kind of manage all of that. So it's just more expensive for us. And the way sure. and the way that we do that because we're like you know we want to align incentives. It's like okay, so if we're doing a ten-year fund or, or an evergreen fund, like I talked about in an OZ, over time all of those got fixed up. Do we really need that fee? I mean, as much as it'd be great to keep collecting the two percent fee, it's like well, that's not really that's not needed, right? I mean, once we've 
renovated those communities and they're stabilized and you know we're not doing those major projects we don't need that fee so basically we have, the way we have it structured <clears throat> once we recapitalize and return investors capital the fee is just based on that their contributed capital so as that goes to zero that asset management fee goes away so, so yeah. that, that'd be the one difference with the oz fund but yeah other than that that's that's kind of how we're structured wonderful Hey, thank you so much for, for adding value to our listeners and for coming on the show. Uh, Sam, how can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out? Awesome. Yeah. So probably uh, best place would be LinkedIn. I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, just, I guess it'd be like forward slash Sam Hales, I believe. I think I was the first one on there. First Sam Hales on there. Um, <laughs> or, or my email is sam at Saratoga Group, S-A-R-A-T-O-G-A, and then group dot com so those would be a couple good ways to get a hold of me Andrew, thanks so much yeah thank you so much for coming on the show uh to all the listeners out there if you like this please hit the subscribe button to get signed up to receive all of our future interviews with other rock stars like sam hales uh that's it for today thank you all so much for tuning in hey are you getting value out of this show if so Would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.